This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast that features lectures and conversations that happen at UC Berkeley. Find more talks at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. My name is Francesco Arriaga. I am the co-president of the Berkeley Immigration Group. Thank you all for coming. It is a great turnout. Today we will be talking about the DACA litigation that occurred in the Supreme Court last week. Uh, we have two esteemed speakers. First, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. He is a spectacular dean at our law school who not only manages the law school but fights for justice in our country. So thank you, Dean Chemerinsky. And we also have uh, Mr. Ethan Detmer, who is a partner at Gibson Dunn. He came to our law school last year as well to talk about immigration, and he continues the fight helping immigrant communities in America. So please give him a warm welcome as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming this afternoon. I'm so honored that I've been part of this litigation from an early stage. I've had the great pleasure of working with Ethan, who really spearheaded the effort at Gibson Dunn. Terrific lawyers there, Mark Rosenbaum at Public Counsel, and of course others who were involved as lawyers in some of the additional cases that were being litigated simultaneously and ultimately culminated last week in the arguments before the United States Supreme Court. To set the stage from the lawyer's perspective, and that's what we're really going to be talking about this afternoon is a lawyer's perspective, it was very clear from the outset that these were tremendously sympathetic facts, but it was a very difficult set of legal issues. All of you are familiar with the facts. This is about somewhere between 700,000 and 800,000 individuals. They were brought to the United States at a young age to qualify. They're younger than 15. Um, they had to be older than 30 at the time the program went into effect. They all had to be in school or successfully graduated or a GED, or in the military, or honorably discharged. The idea of deporting such individuals makes absolutely no sense. If you're sending them to a place where they had never lived, it was cruel. These were individuals who rightly from the outset were called dreamers. So if you think of it from a lawyer's perspective, you could not have more sympathetic clients, you could not have a more sympathetic cause. But it was also clear from the outset as a matter of law, it's a very difficult legal issue. And this is something that had to be faced at the district court, the Ninth Circuit, and the Supreme Court briefing and oral argument. Now, the most immediate argument that would come to mind would be one of reliance, that these individuals had developed a liberty or a property interest in remaining in the United States, and that for President Trump to rescind DACA was taking away their liberty or property interest without due process. But if you look at the website of DACA, it made very clear they should have no reliance on the statute. They have no reliance on the president's executive order. If you've studied procedural due process, you know whether you have a liberty or property interest is based on the expectations that are created. And here, the website couldn't be clear, have no expectations. At the same time, this is an area of tremendous presidential discretion. Ultimately, the reason DACA is legal is because of the discretion of the president. But then, if the president has discretion to create DACA, doesn't the president also have discretion to rescind DACA? 
In fact, doesn't that create a dilemma that has to be faced at each stage of the litigation? If DACA is illegal when it was adopted by President Obama, then President Trump is justified in rescinding it. If DACA is legal, it's because the president had discretion. But if President Obama had discretion, doesn't President Trump have discretion to rescind it? And I think, and I think we'd agree on this, this was the central difficult legal issue that had to be faced at each stage of the litigation. So um, just to follow up on what Dean Chemerinsky said, I mean, he, he really, the, the, the themes that he was just mentioning came out in, in incredible detail and, and really powerful um, advocacy and questioning at the argument last week in the Supreme Court. And, and this was really a theme that we dealt with throughout the, the, the entire case. Um, now, what, what we're going to try to do, just to give you a little roadmap for the day, we're going to try to step back to before the beginning of this case, give you some background on what this is about, give you a little sense of what it's like to litigate a case like this, um, although cases like this are all very different. Um, and then we're going to kind of march through the, the litigation itself and end up in the Supreme Court and talk about what happened last week. So um, we're, we're, we're being ambitious. We're trying to do a lot, but we're going to try to save some time at the end for questions as well. So... Um, Here's just a little uh, audio-visual for you on uh, what we had here. And he prepared all the slides. I don't know how to do PowerPoint, <laughs> so he gets full credit for this wonderful I, presentation. I, I have people. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we talked about a lot was this notion that President Trump, in, in statements like that and other ones, talked about using the DACA recipients as sort of bargaining chips for his larger immigration uh, goals and strategies. And there was a tension that we'll talk about some more during the course of the presentation between him saying, his administration saying that there was no legal authority in the presidency to, to have a program like DACA, but then also saying things like what he said there, which is that he'll, he'll, he'll do DACA if, if the Supreme Court does the right thing. So um, we're sort of dealing, as many of us are in, in this and other areas, with, with a moving target. So going back to sort of deeper background, deferred action, I'm going to go through this quickly. Many of you probably know this. Deferred action is a general um, sort of something that the executive has used for since the Eisenhower administration. In um, presidential administrations of both parties have, because there are too many undocumented people in the country to remove all at once and there aren't the resources to get rid of them, uh, to, to remove them from the country, the uh, executive has to make prioritizations among those folks. So, so deferred action, and there have been many such programs, including DACA, have said we're going to take certain people and tell them that we're deferring them. And certain benefits flow from that, including, very importantly, um, the, the notion of work authorization. So if you get deferred action, you can get work authorization and work um, in the, in the above-board economy. So the, uh, this is uh, Secretary Napolitano, who is the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security. She's also, as, as you all know, the president currently of the University of California, and she's one of the plaintiffs in one of the companion cases to the one that Dean Chemerinsky and I filed. She was in the Supreme Court last Tuesday watching the arguments and has been an incredible supporter of this cause, obviously from the beginning and before. And this is the memo that she drafted uh, and signed back in 2012, which kicked off this program in the first place. And it, it lays out a lot of the, the sympathetic issues and the, the very powerful moral issues that Dean Chemerinsky mentioned at the beginning of our talk about why 
um, Dreamers were such important people to protect and why it did not make sense to use immigration resources in order to remove them. Um, and so in the interest of time, I will very quickly, unless you have anything to add on that, just introduce you to one other important person in this. This, this is Luis Cortez. He is one of our uh, co-counsel in the case. He is uh, one of a handful of licensed practicing lawyers in the country who is also a DACA recipient. He's a, a good friend of mine. I've, I've been working with him for years now and, and just an incredibly um, inspirational and courageous person. And he's going to just briefly mention, he, he's talked a lot on the, uh, in, in the media, but briefly mention why to him DACA is so important. And I think everyone knows the effect of deferred deportation status was for a two-year period. These individuals did not need to fear deportation. There are also things that would go along with it, but like being able to get work permits. So taking away this status would then mean that this group would be in tremendous fear at any time of being subjected to deportation and lose the other benefits that go along with it. Closely related to DACA was another program, the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans. And if you read the transcript or listen to the oral argument from last Tuesday, there's discussion explicitly of the ways in which DAPA is similar to or different from DACA. DAPA was about individuals in the United States who were undocumented, but had children who were citizens who were lawfully in the United States. And President Obama created this program to give deferred deportation status to this group of individuals. There's a tremendous similarity in that the government's saying there may be as many as 11 million undocumented individuals in the United States. Let's make wise choices about where to use the power to deport. And it's not wise to deport the dreamers, and it doesn't make sense to deport parents who have children who are citizens. And so this is the description of it that it applied to about 4.3 million people. And that's about a third of those who are thought to be unlawfully present. Um, there was a memo done analyzing its legality before it was adopted. And the slide shows the Department of Homeland Security analyzed this and concluded that the president as a valid exercise of prosecutorial discretion, could adopt the DAPA program. The state of Texas filed a lawsuit challenging DACA, and the United States District Court in the Northern District of Texas found it conflicted with federal immigration law. It was not a ruling on whether the president had constitutional authority to do so, but instead it was about a conflict between the DAPA executive order and the federal statute. It went to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. In a two-to-one decision, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the district court that DAPA was a violation of immigration law and affirmed the preliminary injunction. It went to the Supreme Court. Cert was granted. It was briefed and argued, but it was October term 2015. On February 13, 2016, Justice Scalia died. So the justices announced that they were split four to four. A four to four split in the Supreme Court means that the lower court is affirmed by an evenly divided court. There's no Supreme Court opinion or judgment rendered other than that. That meant that the Fifth Circuit decision was affirmed, the district court preliminary injunction stayed in place, 
And this then becomes a key justification for why President Trump rescinds DACA. And as the slide indicates, um, after President Trump comes into office in June of 2017, Texas announced that it's going to sue the federal government to have DACA enjoined on the basis of the Fifth Circuit's decision that had been affirmed by the Supreme Court by an even divided court with regard to DACA. And the highlighted language then has, if by September 5th the executive branch agrees to rescind this, the DACA memo, and not to renew or issue any new DACA or expanded DACA in the future, then plaintiffs successfully challenge DAPA and expanded DACA will dismiss their lawsuit that's currently pending in the Southern District of Texas. So Texas says to the Trump administration, if you'll rescind DACA, we'll dismiss our lawsuit challenging it, otherwise we're going to go forward. So uh, one of the things that comes out in the course of our litigation, and we'll talk about it in a little, little bit more detail as we go along, is that that letter that Dean Chemerinsky was just pointing to was not just out of the blue. Texas didn't come up with this idea all by themselves to say we're going to challenge DACA. They're, we actually uncovered, although we couldn't really, because of reasons I'll explain, get into the details of what those communications were. We knew that Texas and Attorney General Sessions and other sort of immigration hardliners within the administration were all talking to each other. So this series of events was very planned out. The, the Texas letter was something that, um, that had been sort of cleared ahead of time with Sessions and others in the administration. And so that letter came saying, if, if you don't rescind DACA, then we're going to threaten it in court. And then very shortly thereafter, uh, Attorney General Sessions sent a, or made public a letter basically saying DACA was, uh, was enacted without statutory authority and it was unconstitutional, which is why Dean Chemerinsky points out there was nothing in the Fifth Circuit opinion that uh, Sessions relied upon that said anything about constitutionality. But nevertheless, um, Attorney General Sessions said that the, the program was un- unconstitutional, which is something that we pointed to over and over again in the course of the litigation, that he just got it wrong in this, in this official document. Nevertheless, he, he did say that it should be rescinded. Um, and promptly the next day, the then acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Elaine Duke, um, sent out a memo saying DACA is rescinded. And the reason it's being rescinded is because, according to the Attorney General, it is unlawful. Um, she did not say unconstitutional. Um, we don't really know exactly why the difference, but, but it, it is interesting. Um, I, I will also say, in, in case those of you uh, who haven't heard of it or gotten it, if you're interested in this topic generally, I, I strongly recommend you get this book called Border Wars that came out about a month ago by a couple of uh, New York Times reporters that tells the story of, of DACA, rescission, and um, more generally the, the Trump administration's policies on immigration, and it's, it's fantastically reported. Yes? This becomes the key to the litigation in the district court, the court of appeals, and the Supreme Court. Because this is the justification given by the government for rescinding DACA. And the question is, is this reason stated in that memo a legitimate reason? And the argument is, if not, then it's an impermissible decision and it has to start all over again. But this is the crucial memo that's much discussed in oral argument and at every stage of the litigation. 
And so briefly, as you all probably remember, um, when the rescission happened and even in the week or so leading up to it, there was a lot of attention around this um, issue. There was a lot of talk about what was going to happen. And as the the reporting and the polling at the time indicated, the U.S. public is, and frankly the international public, is strongly in favor of the Dreamers' rights and them being able to stay. Um, And so... You know, this becomes very relevant to our arguments generally, um, both in the Supreme Court and before, because it is so unpopular of a political move for the administration to get rid of DACA that they are really, in our view, looking for reasons why they can avoid taking responsibility. And so that memo uh, by Elaine Duke really points to just one thing. It doesn't say it's a good idea to get rid of DACA. It doesn't say that this is wise policy. It blames this on a legal determination that we think, and we've contended you know, throughout this litigation, is just wrong. Um, so that becomes a real focal point for this whole case. Um, this, this, again, points back to the theme about the president sort of using DACA and the DACA recipients as a bargaining chip for his his policies, or, or at least the policies of his hardliners, uh, or his, the hardliners within his administration. You may recall, and this is something that, that came up over and over again, President Trump had sort of a, a real conflicted belief, at least according to his public statements and his tweets, about DACA recipients. He said many times early on in his presidency and even before he was elected that you know, he believed that the DACA recipients should be able to stay. He thinks the Dreamers should be treated with heart. And he made a number of statements like that. Um, now, that has sort of uh, disappeared more recently, but there was a lot of this type of tweet where he'd say things or, or statement where he'd say things like, um, these are great kids and they should be able to stay, but we have to do a deal and we have to, you know, have really strong enforcement and the border wall and that sort of thing. So it was a real conflict. Um, so, then we filed our case shortly afterward, and uh, Dean Chemerinsky and I, along with Mark Rosenbaum at Public Counsel, uh, Larry Tribe, a, a number of people at my firm, uh, Leah Lipman, who's now at, at Michigan, um, we and Luis Cortez, who you saw, we had been representing a DACA recipient exactly. up in Washington State, uh, a man named Daniel Ramirez, who was one of the first, I think he was the first DACA recipient who'd been arrested um, and detained under the Trump administration. We'd been representing him for almost a year. And when all this happened, we all got together and decided there was something, we, we really had to do something about the rescission more generally. So we spent a lot of time thinking and brainstorming and looking for people who would have, the, frankly, the courage, the integrity to put themselves out there and you know, put, put, put a target on their backs, really. And so these are our six clients in this case, um, who were all at the argument last week um, and are really amazing people. I, in the interest of time, I'll go quickly. Your na- their names are up there, but they are um, a lawyer, a special ed teacher, a law student at, at Irvine, um, a doctor at UCSF, um, a, high, uh, a elementary school teacher in L.A., and a social worker. Um, and they all not only came from, like, really hard... Um, beginnings. Uh, They all grew up in poverty, and they all not only did these incredible things, but have turned all those skills and all that experience back to helping their communities. And all of them work in areas that are underprivileged. I mean, they're really amazing examples of what Americans should be. 
And I think one of the things, and I think this goes to the next slide as well, which I think is the timing, that DACA was rescinded on September 5th, and this lawsuit was filed September 18th. Obviously, to be able to do it in that time, there'd been a lot of thought already given to what happens if President Trump rescinds DACA. Um, it was, as was pointed out, the same legal team that had been representing Daniel Ramirez. But it was also thought very important that there be a lawsuit brought on behalf of DACA beneficiaries. We knew that the University of California was going to sue and assert its interest in the interest of its students. We knew that organizations like the NAACP were going to file a lawsuit. But we thought it's so important to put before the court specific individuals, human beings, and their story. And again, I think this goes all the way through from the beginning of the litigation through last week before the Supreme Court, reminding each level of court that this wasn't an abstract legal issue. This is about real people in their lives. I think the next is the complaint. Um, thinking of the legal theory was difficult. I mean, it's, again, there's the temptation to want to make this into a constitutional issue, and we do assert constitutional claims, but it's a hard constitutional issue because it's difficult to argue there's a liberty or property interest here. And I spent many hours arguing this with Mark Rosenbaum in terms of can we turn this into a constitutional issue. Um, but the primary argument is that under the Administrative Procedures Act, there has to be an articulated, legitimate reason for an agency action. And I think you have a slide there. That under the Administrative Procedures Act, a federal statute, courts can set aside agency actions arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion, or otherwise not in accordance with the law. That's the exact language from the Administrative Procedures Act. In the Supreme Court, it said courts must conduct a thorough, probing, in-depth review of the agency reasoning and a searching, careful inquiry into the factual underpinnings of the agency's decision. And our argument was the justification that was given for rescinding DACA was that it was illegal. But it wasn't illegal. It was a lawful exercise of presidential discretion. And that, therefore, since the justification was invalid, the action taken by the president was also invalid. And on the complaint on the right side, if you look, you'll notice all that was being sought was injunctive and declaratory relief. A declaration that DACA was legal, a declaration that the president's action was illegal in terms of the Administrative Procedures Act, and an injunction accordingly. No damages were sought as a remedy. So we then started a real whirlwind of six months or so, uh, not even six months, of incredibly um, just fast-paced litigation activity. We all knew that the rescission had sent had set a six-month sort of wind-down period. So in March of 2018, that was when DACA would be done and there would be no more, um, that people would be able to sort of end out their terms of DACA. So if they had two years left, they'd be able to finish their two years. But there'd be no new renewals, there'd be no new DACA recipients. And so we knew we had this very short period of time in order to get things done. And we really wanted to get as much information as we could about the sort of thinking behind DACA, the reasoning that the, that the administration had about it. Um, one of the very important things about an Administrative Procedure Act case is that the agency is required under the law to provide what's called its administrative record. Um, so that's the, the memos, the analyses, the communications, the memos, whatever, of, of 
what that underlie that administrative action. And here we said we want the administrative record for the DACA rescission. The government provided to us 256 pages. Now, in most Administrative Procedure Act cases, there, you get boxes and boxes and boxes. Well, in the old days you did. Now you get a, a hard drive, right? But it's a lot of stuff. Um, and here it was 256 pages, and the vast majority of it was printed from Westlaw. It was the Texas decision and the Fifth Circuit decision um, in the DAPA case that we described earlier, and they said, here it is. This is, this is our reasoning. Um, so the first thing we did was we filed a motion to complete the administrative record. Now, I, it, the case was in front of a, a very well-respected district judge in San Francisco, uh, Bill Alsup, and he uh, is a very thorough judge. One of the first things he do, did in this case, and he does this from time to time, was he, he wanted to have a tutorial. Um, so he had a two-hour set-aside where nothing was being argued, but we had people come in and just explain immigration law to him, explain the history of deferred action. And we actually had Luis Cortez, who I mentioned earlier, to come in and, and talk about because he is an immigration lawyer. He knows this stuff inside and out. So in addition to doing what, what um, Judge Alsop wanted, we also thought it was a really powerful message to have a DACA recipient who could come in and... and show his expertise and show his, you know, his, 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 his incredible um, contribution to our legal system. So that happened quickly while Judge Alsop was looking at the, um, the motion to complete the administrative record. Um, and that was, that was granted pretty quickly. Um, he, he, gave, he told the government that they had to produce everything um, and then started... I think what, what we'll call just a, an incredible stonewalling effort by the government. They went to the Ninth Circuit and tried to get to the Supreme Court very quickly, both on this issue of our effort to get discovery and the administrative record, and then also, as you'll see later, tried to get to the Supreme Court on the merits in a way that was both unusual and, um, and, and, and very rare. Um, so... Let's see. Uh, I'm going to kind of whip through this very quickly. Um, so, I'm sorry, I can't read very well. That's very small writing. <laughs> um, so, at the same time, all this motion practice is going on. There's just an enormous amount of work being done, both by my firm, by public counsel, by our co-counsel, and other places, where we are taking depositions of government actors. We are filing motions, both on on the government's assertion of executive um, privilege so that they don't have to produce these documents. We're trying to get beyond executive privilege, which obviously is a lot in the news right now. Um, We are talking to DACA recipients, to their families, to their employers, to their schools, to their employees, and we are building this record. We we had, I think, a, a total of 108 declarations at the end of the day, very detailed, lengthy, sworn statements of people just talking about how important DACA was to them, to their families, to their communities, to their churches, and and being ready to put that information in front of Judge Alsup in order to get the preliminary injunction motion that we we're filing. So we had teams of people working on all these different tasks just basically around the clock for several months. At the same time, the government was, as I said, saying, this is all about executive privilege. You can't ask that question. Um, you have all the administrative record there is, and there is no more to uh, get. But as soon as Judge Alsup gave us 
information. For instance, he ordered the administrative record to be completed. The the government immediately went to the Ninth Circuit and filed a mandamus petition, which is a, a really unusual motion, which says, essentially, this district court is out of control, and you have to do something to control them. The Ninth Circuit, we we briefed that in the Ninth Circuit. That was argued, and the Ninth Circuit denied that. And then the government, very promptly right after that, filed um, a mandamus petition in the Supreme Court on that issue, asking that the Supreme Court uh, control Judge Alsup and and not let him go forward with this. Now, the way that ended up um, being ruled on was that the Supreme Court of the United States did issue the mandamus petition. They didn't say that Judge Alsop was wrong. They said it was premature. And the Supreme Court said before all of this um, administrative record gets produced, the court should rule on the preliminary motions. Um, If the government wants to file a motion to dismiss the case, that should get ruled on first. Judge Alsop should determine his jurisdiction, and that should get ruled on first, and the preliminary injunction motion should get ruled on first. So those all got filed, and that was uh, being, being, uh, being adjudicated. Now, I just have one little deposition clip here. This is a, a man named Gene Hamilton, who is a government lawyer. He was, at the time, in the Department of Homeland Security, and, and we learned through discovery that he was actually the one who drafted the Duke Memorandum, and he actually, a side note, plays a prominent role in the Border Wars book that I mentioned earlier. And I give you this clip just because it gives you a real sense of the general approach that the government took during these, these critical months. The district court grants the preliminary injunction. The district court, Judge Alsup, said that the justification that the government gave for rescinding DACA was it was unlawful, but DACA was, in fact, a legitimate exercise of presidential discretion. Therefore, there was not an articulated legitimate reason for rescinding DACA, and the preliminary injunction is granted. And you see the... Oh, and you got the President Trump's oh, response to it. That. No, that's Okay. okay. Do you want to go to the... Oh, sure. Yeah. Before judgment? Yeah. So, so um, what happened right away was, and this, again, goes with the theme that we've been talking about, the, um, the first thing that the government did, instead of the usual thing that you do, which is file a, a, a notice of appeal and go to the circuit court, was that the, the government filed something called a petition for cert before judgment. And that is a, a very unusual procedural mechanism where you basically say this is such an emergency and such a critical situation that we're not going to go through the usual appellate route and we're going to go straight to the Supreme Court. Of course, you have to ask the Supreme Court to do that. Um, and so what the, the reason, the primary reason the government gave was that this ruling required the government essentially to sanction an ongoing violation of federal law and that they shouldn't be required to do that. Um, And so we were in real time sort of dealing with that petition but also getting ready for the appeal. Um, One of the things that's interesting here, and just as a brief aside, in a case like this, you often end up reacting to the news in court, right? So, So... this was a statement that President Trump made in an interview, and we've got the reporter's question is hard to hear, so we printed it out there. It's just an or, uh, audio interview. Um, and you can hear that this, this is statements that, that we were then able to use right away. So President Trump says, I certainly have the right to put DACA back into place, and I might do that, right? Which 
you all know by now from our discussion, is exactly opposite to what they say, which is that the executive doesn't have the right to keep DACA in place because it's unlawful. So we put that right into our opposition to the cert before judgment that got, you know, the, the, the administration can't even keep their story straight, right? Is DACA unlawful or is it something that the president can do if he doesn't get his way? Um, and that was, you know, something that we thought was was really important. We also talked a lot about just, you know, how important it is to go through the regular process and that cert before judgment is usually something that you use in cases of national emergency. Um, so the uh, Supreme Court denied that petition um, for cert before judgment and said something to the effect of we, we expect the Ninth Circuit will deal with this issue in a expeditious way, um, which... And went forward. You want me to talk about Nielsen? Or? You want to talk about Nielsen? The, the second explanation for why oh. they're rescinding DACA. Yeah, so, so our case was proceeding here in San Francisco and in the Ninth Circuit. There were two other large groups of cases that were consolidated on the East Coast. There was one set of cases um, in uh, New York, in a federal court in Brooklyn, and another one in, in the federal court in the, in the District of Columbia. And that's this case the, um, brought by the NAACP, by Princeton University, by Microsoft Corporation, and by a number of individuals. Um, and in that case, the judge approached it slightly differently. Same re- ultimate result, but slightly differently than Judge Alsup. Um, judge Bates in, in the District of Columbia, instead of entering an injunction, he vacated the rescission, which is something you can do under the Administrative Procedure Act, just say that 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 action is ineffective, and um, he did that, and then he said, um, "But I'm going to give the agency a chance to kind of do it over again, and if they want to give, if they want to do a, a new rescission and explain the real reasons behind it, then that's something they can do." So. The, the government decided not to exactly take him up on that. And they, they instead said, we're going to leave the original rescission in place. And this is, this is then, so Kirsten Nielsen was now the Secretary of Homeland Security. We're going to leave the rescission in place, but sort of give some new reasons for it. And the reason we're giving you this aside is because this becomes very important as the case goes forward. And the question, uh, and this is something Dean Chemerinsky sort of alluded to, was do you have to talk about just the reasons that are given for the initial action, or can the agency then come along later and sort of, I don't know, bolster the record later along? And that becomes an issue in the Supreme Court. And it's worth noting that Judge Bates is, by any account, a conservative judge, a Republican appointee. So to the extent that some have wanted to focus on the ideology and political party the president appointed, Judge Bates coming to the same conclusion, I think, was quite powerful the Nielsen memo gives four reasons for rescinding DACA, but they're quite similar to what it was before, that DACA was illegal or they had substantial doubts about the legality of DACA based on the DAPA ruling and the like. Um, probably it's worth, especially since to talk about the Ninth Circuit opinion and the, the, the census case. Um, yeah. so as long as... Uh, oh, go ahead, please. I'll just, I'll just push it forward to that. Um, the Ninth Circuit panel was Kim Wardlaw... Jacqueline Wynn and John Owens. Um, ideologically, I think of Wardlaw as the most liberal of those three. I've argued several times in front of both Judge Wynn and Judge Owens, and I think of them as moderate liberals, but certainly not among the most liberals on the court. And the Ninth Circuit um, affirms the district court, 
Judge Wardlaw writes the opinion. Judge Owens concurs in the judgment on slightly different grounds. But the basic point that is addressed by Judge Wardlaw is that DACA was legal and that, therefore, the justification that was given for rescinding DACA is impermissible. There were actually two questions before the Ninth Circuit, and they're the same two questions that the Supreme Court faced last week. One is, is the decision of the president to rescind DACA judicially reviewable? The position of the government before the Ninth Circuit and before the Supreme Court was a president's exercise of prosecutorial discretion is unreviewable, and that, therefore, there's no basis for the court being able to review at all. And Judge Wardlaw, in very strong language, says that it is subject to judicial review. And, in fact, I don't know if it's a quote right, Marbury versus Madison is cited <laughs> for those of you who will have me for con law next semester, it's why I start the semester with Marbury versus Madison. It really does matter. Um, <laughs> and then on the merits, having decided that it's reviewable, she says, as I mentioned, that President Obama had the legal authority to adopt DACA, thus the justification that was given for its rescission was invalid. Now, I don't know if there's anything about the Ninth Circuit case. I want to say a word about the census case that came down after this. After this, on June 27th, the Supreme Court decides Department of Homeland Security versus New York. And that involves whether or not it was permissible for the Commerce Department to have a question about citizenship on the 2020 census. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, finds that it was impermissible to add this question on citizenship because there wasn't a legitimate reason given to the administrative process. Now, what happened here was, according to Chief Justice Roberts, the Commerce Department asked the Justice Department, would it help you if we asked a question about citizenship on the census? And the Justice Department said, no, we don't need it. The Commerce Department then went to the Department of Homeland Security and said, would it help you if we asked a question about it? And the Department of Homeland Security said, we don't need it. Then the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, asked the then Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, wouldn't it really help you if we asked a question about citizenship? And Jeff Sessions said, yes, it would help us enforce the Voting Rights Act. But there was no evidence whatsoever that would help enforce the Voting Rights Act. Chief Justice Roberts said this was just the the Attorney General doing a favor for the Secretary of Commerce, and that doesn't count as a legitimate reason for purposes of the Administrative Procedures Act. Now, four justices, Breyer writing, joined by Ginsburg, Sonner, and Kagan, would said, we should just invalidate the decision of the Department of Commerce. But Chief Justice Roberts said no, that the court should give the Department of Commerce another chance to come up with a legitimate reason. I confess when I read this on Thursday morning, June 27th, I was perplexed by it. The court said, there has to be a legitimate reason for the action. It can't be a pretext. But Department of Commerce, go come up with another reason. Well, if you remember, what then played out was the Justice Department told the federal judges on Tuesday, July 2nd, they weren't going to seek a question about citizenship. The Justice Department issued a press release. It wasn't going to seek a question about citizenship on the census. That night, President Trump tweeted, fake news. We are going to seek a question on citizenship. They couldn't figure out a way to do so. And on Monday, July 8th, the government announced it wasn't going to seek a question on citizenship on the census. But the reason it's relevant here is the core argument that's being made is that the justification given for sending DACA was illegitimate. 
Well, likewise, the Supreme Court says in Department of Commerce versus New York, the reason that was given there was not legitimate, and that was a basis for invalidating the action. So there's just some of the language from there's some of the language yeah. from the case. So the, the <laughs> census case was something that came out right about the same time as our the, the cert grant in our case. Um, I think it was the day after, if I remember right. And if I can just mention, yeah. the cert petition was pending before the Supreme Court for months. And the Supreme Court kept relisting it, taking no action. Then it took it off of the conference calendar altogether. And there were many conferences where it wasn't listed at all. And no one could figure out what happened to it. Until finally, in June of 2019, the court then grants cert. At the end of the term. So right. we all were you know, thrilled every time that, that it was passed by. And then when it was taken off the conference list, that was oh, great. Uh, when cert was granted, we obviously were all uh, not happy about that. But we did have this opinion in the census case at the same time that gave us uh, – um, that really sort of reinforced a lot of our theory – of our case about what, what our case was about. So then we, um, we engaged in a real sort of another whirlwind of getting ready for the arguments. So the, the cert was granted in all three of those groups of cases. is actually nine cases altogether um, in three groups. I think there are something like 45 plaintiffs in all of these cases. So there was a lot of discussion about who was going to present the argument. Um, and the argument really was, you know, this this APA issue that we've been talking about. Now, um, one of the things that we thought, this is some headlines from shortly before the argument. One of the things that we thought was really important, we knew we had to reach some of the more conservative members of the court who, you know, traditionally may not have have seen this case our way or maybe in the DAPA case voted uh, the way that we, we didn't like. Now, you know, when you're getting ready for a Supreme Court case, as, as many veteran Supreme Court uh, advocates say, you, you don't take any vote for granted and you don't count any vote out. Um, and you do everything you can to get to five votes. So one of the things we're really hoping to do is to have uh, Ted Olson, who's one of the senior partners in my firm, um, he was a uh, the, the Solicitor General under George W. Bush and was private lawyer to President Reagan and head of the OLC back in the 80s um, and is known as somebody who's a real expert on and proponent of executive authority, which obviously is something that was very important in our case. We wanted... Um, we wanted somebody to say the executive, of course, has the power to do a deferred action program like DACA, and um, we thought that Ted would be a great advocate for that, in addition to the fact that he's just a, a very frequent, um, uh, frequent advocate at the Supreme Court and knows it well. Uh, Maybe I should add here that in the Supreme Court, generally, it's one lawyer per side. Yeah. It's truly extraordinary as here to have two lawyers on a side. And when there are multiple cases that are consolidated, if the lawyers can't agree as to argue, the court will flip a coin to decide among them. Now, lawyers who are involved generally would want the opportunity to argue. And I cannot tell you, though I was not privy to all the discussions, I know about a lot of them, that it was a friendly discussion at all moments and that it was always consensus as to who should argue, because certainly some of the other lawyers who argued and in some of the other cases Remember, these are several cases that have been consolidated. We're all jockeying for who should argue. But I certainly was one who thought that Ted Olson was the logical choice because he was a Solicitor General of the Republic Administration. 
He did personally know the conservative justice on the court, and it would, I think, send the best possible message in that regard. But it sure wasn't an easy conclusion for the people to come to. <laughs> there were a lot of discussions. Demerinsky <laughs> is right. But, but, you know, one of the other messages that we wanted to get across was this, I think, really important message that I don't know if we've, we've conveyed it strongly enough, but I, I, I think it, Ted's involvement really um, helped with this was that this should not be a political issue, right? This is, this is an issue of the rule of law and of, you know, the government being accountable for its decisions and giving accurate reasons for what it's doing. We wanted to sort of take the Republican and Democrat issue out of this as much as possible. And one of the things that we we're very um, adamant about was having Luis as a DACA recipient be the person who sat right next to Ted at council table in, in the Supreme Court during the argument so that you know, he's, if you've never been to the Supreme Court, council table is about you know, five feet away from the justices. You're, you're really right there staring right into their eyes. And having somebody who is, who is you know, himself a lawyer and himself going to lose his law license, at least conceivably, if this goes the wrong way, um, is a powerful message and something that we thought was really important to humanize the whole thing, as we were talking about at the beginning. I think one of the things that Ted Olson did, which was exactly right, was begin his argument by talking about the people who were involved and the human consequences of this. Um, I was not in the court. And, or, the lawyers who wanted to be there, other than there's a council table, had to be there at 2 in the morning on um, Monday night, Tuesday morning. Um, I was in D.C. because I was arguing a case on Wednesday morning in the court and decided it wasn't the best use of my time to spend the night before outside in the cold, but I've had a chance to read the transcript of the argument. And I think what Ted Olson did from the very beginning was really try to remind the judges of the people involved. And some of the justices were very receptive. I think Justice Sotomayor, in particular, really wanted to remind the colleagues. Some seemed quite indifferent to it. Um, I think that the dilemma that I mentioned at the beginning was present throughout the oral argument. If, on the one hand, DACA is illegal then President Trump is justified. If DACA is lawful, it's because the president has broad, inherent power with regard to immigration. And if the president has broad, inherent power with regard to immigration, why can't one president rescind what another president has done? And I think that really is center. Um, Lots of discussion at the world argument about the reviewability question. When can the court review a presidential decision to prosecute or not prosecute, deport or not deport, as well as the merits question? And it wouldn't surprise me that this case could come out on the reviewability question without ever reaching the merits question. All right. Should we take five minutes of questions? Yeah. I think we we five should. minutes before the end. Yeah. Questions that you have about especially just the litigation strategy along the way. Please. It's a great question. I, um, so, so it was that that exact issue was part of the litigation early on, um, and one of the things that that in our case and, and I think all the cases challenging this, there we really did bring some of the constitutional arguments that Dean Chemerinsky was mentioning earlier about yes. that are challenging in sort of the broader sense. 
but with respect to information that people, and, and just for those of you who don't know, in order to get DACA, you have to give your fingerprints, you have to give your address, you have to have a background check, all sorts of really personal and private information. So we brought um, claims, and, and the courts have all upheld them, saying that information cannot be shared. Now, I, I do think just knowing how you know the law works and how how politics works, that's something that we're going to have to be vigilant about in the future and make sure that those, those, get, those get followed. I don't know if you have more on that. But, yeah. Other questions? Please. Uh, is there any sense as to whether work authorizations would be immediately invalidated or whether they'd be allowed to expire? Yeah. I mean, that would ultimately be up to the Trump administration. Um, you know, there certainly is going to be litigation that, of reliance and whether or not the work authorization might create some kind of a liberty or property interest. But ultimately, I don't think anyone could answer that question at this time because the government hasn't taken a position. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think it's, it's not an easy question, honestly, to answer. Um, I do think the good news is that there are two-year tail on, on what people have as far as work authorization now. I mean, as far as it doesn't go away until their DACA uh, is gone, and that will last two years after it was granted. So hopefully that will get people, um, you know, to, to a new, some kind of new status. Other questions? Please. Um, so what happens if the, the court um, rules in your favor and essentially does what they did in the census case? Like they say, look, if you come up with another reason, you can rescind DACA. Um, the government isn't on a timer like they were with the census case, and that's kind of why it worked out in our favor. Is the goal here just to push this along until we can get into another administration where this is a threat? My answer is yes. <laughs> um, my hope is that no matter what the court does, that they're going to wait until the end of June to do it. And if they reverse the Ninth Circuit, that some of the liberal justice will take a very long time writing their dissents to get us to the end of June. That if they should affirm the Ninth Circuit, better towards the end of June anyway, that should they reverse the Ninth Circuit, my hope would be that Congress might act very quickly in a focused way with regard to DACA itself, since DACA has overwhelming support at the polls and it's an election year. I'm less optimistic, but if not, I would hope that President Trump, if he wins in the court, might still reinitiate DACA. But if none of that happens and DACA expires, then you get to what the consequences are going to be. And if the Supreme Court affirms the Ninth Circuit, the bottom lines would give the Trump administration another chance to repeal DACA, but with legitimate reasons. Um, and hopefully that would stretch out till the end of the administration. I, I, I agree with that. I do think that actually there is, you know, if, if the court does follow our theory and holds them to having to give an honest policy reason, in other words, they have to say, we think DACA is a bad idea or we recognize all these costs of rescinding it and we want to get rid of it anyway, I actually do think that's a harder thing to do. I'm not saying they wouldn't do it, but I think that's harder to do when, when they have to be forthright about their reasoning and be held accountable for it. Thank you all so much for coming. Ethan, thanks for coming and doing this. I'm magnificent. Thank you.